Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. It's Memorial Day at Unity. Today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer shares about a nation mourns. Buckle up as we take an adventure through God's Word together. And if you'd like to know more about how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church, stay with us to the end. We're not preaching about unicorns and kittens this morning, okay? So uh, it's a serious topic. What we're going to talk about today is we're talking about a nation mourns. And so this is a memorial weekend, and there's a lot that, that, that we are mourning and necessarily should be mourning. We're mourning the loss of those soldiers who have fallen on the fields of battle. We're mourning the loss of family members and loved ones. But I would argue this morning that this particular memorial weekend also has a lot more heaviness to it, does it not? There are a number of things as a nation that we are mourning together. When we mourn, we're mourning something that is lost. We're mourning the sins of others which have taken lives from people in our great nation this last week. At times, God calls us to a a period or a season of lament. It's a period of sorrow. It's a time where we take an inventory of our spiritual life and we look at ourselves as a body and we identify that there's, there are things that aren't right here in this world. There are things that aren't right in our nation. And so God calls us to lament. We're not always supposed to go around life, you know, like the joker, you know, with just a, a permanent smile on our face. It's not real. You know, Solomon tried to do that. Remember in Ecclesiastes, he talked about he tested his heart with mirth. He just tried to be happy all the time. He just wanted to surround himself with jokers and and laughter. And he looked at that and he stood back and he's like, that's not real. He said, vanity of vanity, it's empty. There's, There's nothing real there. You're not taking anything in life seriously. And so this morning's message is gonna be a little unusual in that it's gonna have a little more gravitas than maybe what we normally have. It's about... It's about a nation that mourns, but does not simply mourn what we've lost with our loved ones and our soldiers, but we're also mourning what we have lost, and that is our our sense of holiness. James 4, verses 8 through 10, talks about a lament. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He talks about your hands. This is what we do when we do wrong things. He talks about also cleansing our hearts. That's the reason we do it. That's our motivations. He said, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That there's times that God wants us not always just to be telling jokes as a Christian. That we take times of quiet reflection and we reflect on God. What do you want to tell us? We see sin and suffering out in the world. What's wrong? And he wants us to think about these things. And then he says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, after a period of mourning comes that exaltation. We are to be humbling ourselves before him. When a large group of people humble themselves before the Lord together, a lot of times we use the term corporate repentance. Uh, Corporate just means a body of something. 
It comes from the Latin corpus. You ever been to Corpus Christi, Texas? It means the body of Christ. If we talk about a corpse, you know, that's a body. If we talk about uh, the Marine Corps, we're talking about a group, a body of Marines. And so when we talk about corporate repentance, it's when a large core, a body of people collectively say, we need to return to God. We need revival. Now, I like the term corporate confession, quite frankly, because we can't just choose, hey, you know what? Hey, today, how about all of us together as a church, as a nation, let's all repent before the Lord. That requires a work of God to draw our hearts to a state of repentance. It begins with corporate confession, just simply admitting to God, there's suffering in this world. There's wrong that as a nation, maybe we aren't personally doing, but we see that it's within our body that there's sin and there's wrongdoing within the body, within the nation that we live. And then sometimes when that is corporately confessed, that can lead to corporate repentance. Corporate repentance is when a lot of us together, we heed that call and we turn back to God. It happened in the book of Jonah. You remember Jonah? God sends a very reluctant prophet out to the group of Nineveh uh, and he, just, he didn't like them at all, didn't want to preach to him because he thought maybe they might repent and they did corporately. Listen to how Nineveh repented as a, as a city, as a nation. It said, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. We're all fasting, even our animals. He says, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. They recognize that we're, we're suffering because we've sinned. We've done wrong as a nation and God is calling us back to himself and they, and they were returning to him. I mean, this is corporate repentance. Everybody from the king on down to the guy that packs your groceries, you're repenting, your mom and dad are repenting, your neighbor's repenting, the guy that mows your yard is repenting. And just to be on the safe side, we're taking any leftover sackcloth and we're covering our cows, okay? We're, we're making sure everybody, even our animals have to repent. I mean, that's how seriously they were taking the call of God to repent. As a nation, do we have a need for corporate repentance today? Or at least corporate confession? Or is our nation a, a, a continual beacon of nothing uh, but holiness and rainbows? We got things in our, in our, as a nation that, that we need repentance of. You know, I mean, if nothing else, how about the 62 million children that we've killed since Roe v. Wade? You know, 62 million, we hear that in the figures, statistics like that just disappear and they don't really have much impact. Imagine it this way. Imagine if Russia really just didn't like us at all and they launched nuclear missiles and utterly wiped out several states. I mean, man, woman, and child, they just cratered. It would look like this. The entire state of Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee, Indiana, West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, gone. That's how many babies we've killed since Roe v. Wade. Do we as a nation need a time of corporate confession? This isn't right. According to God's laws, this is not right. Beyond that, did we get any bad news this week, last Tuesday? Is there some bad things happening around the nation? that remind us of something of a habitual pattern of darkened hearts doing darkened things? They did. We, our hearts grieve with our friends in Uvalde, Texas, don't we? They're at Robb Elementary School where children should be in their safest place. Were they safe this week? No. We had a gunman go in 
and literally told the children it's time to die. Imagine one of your little ones hearing that at school. And then he went on to shoot up 19 children and two adults. This is a, this is a season where as a nation, we, we lament and mourn. And not just that one situation. We lament and mourn the, the nation and the homes that are producing hearts that are darkened like this. And so we confess to God, God as a nation, we have gotten away from your laws and your rules. I'd like to say that was the only bit of bad news we got this week. You may or may not even be aware of this, but at this church, we don't hide anything. We're just going to throw it out there. As a, as a denomination, do we have anything to repent of this week? I don't know if anybody of you saw the bombshell report issued by Guidepost. It's an independent organization that, as Southern Baptists, we, we saw that there's some cancer in our ranks. And we hired these guys to come in and go through and to look for you know, any moral issues. There were accusations. Was there any truth to it? And come to find out, there was. And so there are reports. There's a, I, I was, oh, took a lot of time this week and a lot of my heart. <laughs> I was exhausted. Reading through the some 250-page report detailing the abuses, the sexual abuses of some uh, at high-ranking, high, high echelons of the Southern Baptist Convention. And while I, I recognize that can happen and does happen in every denomination, it just has more punch when you're the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. And so we have a larger responsibility to protect. And not only as a denomination did we not protect, what did we do? The highest, highest ranking officers within the Southern Baptist Convention, all the way up to the executive committee, covered up these sexual abuses. Friends, the heart of God breaks. And I hope your heart is breaking too, that these things can happen in a place that is supposed to be the safest place in the world, the church or Christian ministry in general should be the safest places that you can, you can be. Can I just tell you as a church, recognize, you know, we're not doing this kind of stuff as a church, but I want you to recognize one of the reasons we are not seeing this in our church is because we do take safeguards. We are protecting you at every, every level that we can. In fact, if you want to see the 10-page document that we have of policies that we have within this church to protect you, I'd just like to let you know some of the things. Uh, myself as a pastor, I've gone through several hours and several different trainings of something called safe and secure, ways that you can secure your ministry and to make sure that it's a healthy and safe place that people don't get abused. I've personally been through these trainings. Beyond this, as a church, we do extensive background checks on everybody that works with children, work with youth. Uh, our D groups, our discipleship groups, where it's just, you know, two, three, four people meeting together, they're not co-ed. I know there was some that thought, oh, that might be fun. As a church, we said, no, we're not going to do this. Why? This is why. It opens up the doors for abuses because those are intimate and tight groups. As a church, we follow what we call the Titus II model. Older men teaching younger men. Older women teaching younger men. It's for reasons like this. We're protecting you. We're protecting your heart. As a church, I don't counsel women by myself. Okay? The most you may say me do for a woman, I'll put my hand on her shoulder and I might pray for her right here in front of 200 people. <laughs> But beyond that, you want to go into counseling, you want to go talking, I'm going to direct you to my wife or some other godly woman in this church. If you want the pastor there with you, I'm happy to counsel, but guess what? My wife's going to be there every time. I will never counsel a woman alone. I will not be in a room alone with a woman. I will not ride in a car alone with a woman. You've been thinking, well, this guy is really intense. 
Friends, all it takes, I don't have to do anything. All it takes is one accusation and my ministry is done. And so as a church, we're very, very cautious and very careful. So women, if you feel like maybe I'm a little bit distant from you, hopefully you don't. Hopefully you can see I love you terribly just as much as any of these men, but I'm, I'm guarding myself and I'm guarding you because we care too much about you to let any of this kind of nonsense come into this church. If you've got a child and you've got a child in one of our ministries, there's always gonna be at least two adults with them. If it's a husband and wife, there will be a third adult because we, want, we don't want any possibility of any kind of cover-up to take place. There, there will be full disclosure. There will be several eyes on your children, making sure that we take good care of your kids. And on and on this goes. You wanna know more. I'm just sharing all of this with you to let you know we care about you enough to take care of these things. Some churches didn't, and we're sad that they did not. But as a church, as Unity Baptist Church, we will take these kind of measures and safeguards. And frankly, can I just throw this out here too? Protect yourselves. Protect yourselves. Don't, like me, don't let yourself get into any one of those situations. If you've got intensive counseling, you wanna open up and bare your heart to somebody, if you're a woman, don't you find a man to do that with unless it's your husband? You say, well, we're just talking. We're not doing anything. We're just talking. Friends, that's where things begin. Where did you fall in love with your mate? It's because you got alone and you got vulnerable with each other and you realized you can share your deepest hurts with this person and they can trust you. And that's where these intimate emotional relationships begin. And so if you've got things that you need to share from your heart with somebody because you're hurting and we all hurt, I encourage you to do that within the church with the same gender, okay? The Bible, again, Titus 2 says, older women with younger women older men with younger, uh, with younger men. That's how the Bible does it. By the way, if you're looking for some of those Titus II type relationships, we have that pre-treat coming up very, very quickly this next week. Okay, end of this week. So, uh, and that's where you're going to cre be creating Titus II communities, at least amongst our women. So anyway, let's move on toward where we're going to be preaching from this morning. We're talking about corporate repentance, corporate confession. At times that a corpus, a body, needs to confess, hey, there's some things we haven't done right. I may not personally be guilty of it, you may not be personally guilty of it, but as a body, it's healthy for us to confess. These things happened and it's not healthy. It helps the lost world understand we don't identify with that. It also reminds every one of us who's here, we gotta take this seriously. We gotta be serious about this. There's all kinds of examples of public confession in the Bible. Um, you have Nehemiah 7, Daniel 9, Jonah 3. Probably the most prominent of those passages is Ezra verses, uh, chapters 9 and 10. And 2 Chronicles 36, 14 shows us why they were repenting. It says, because at that time when God ripped them out of their land, right? It says he did so because the officers and priests of the people were exceedingly unfaithful. They were following the abominations of the nations. They were doing what the lost world does. It says they even polluted the house of the Lord. Even God's house wasn't a safe place. And so God says, I'm not gonna let a nation live like that. And he took them out of their land. He destroyed Israel and he yanked them out of their country and he threw them in a foreign nation and let a foreign invader live in his country. Can God do that with a country if he's so pleased? He sure can. Good thing we live in America. We know God will never let us suffer for doing evil. Okay? No, we know absolute that, that he will and that's why we are confessing these things. We're not, we're, we're an anomaly, America is. Think about our history and where America came from. No other nation has the kind of family tree that we have. Where'd we come from? Who were the, who were the pilgrims? 
They were Puritans who arose out of the pietism movement in Europe where people who didn't just go to church, they went home and you know what they had? Something really unique and, and you know, for the day, it was called quiet times. These Puritans would get alone with God and they'd read the Bible and let God speak to them. And they would pray and they would talk back to God and they, they would have a relationship and they would seek God's face. Those people came over and those values in, of the Bible we're part of our founding documents even. It's where we understand that everybody has unalienable rights. Why? Because they're created by God. That's where we get these ideas. Even this idea of representative government. Friends, as we look at, at Scripture, we have representative government even there. You know, the people, and they're separating for themselves. Yeah, elders and deacons and such. And likewise, in our, our nation's documents, it's all based upon this. And America would go on from 1776. It would go on to be the most successful nation this world has ever seen. So much so, did you realize that uh, France, who had a revolution around the same time we did, they're, just, they're kind of scratching their heads going, okay, why is America turning out this way and we're turning out this way? And so they would send people over to the United States to study us. Why is America so unique? Why is America so blessed? And there was one guy who was one of their politicists, their sociologists, a guy named Alexis de Tocqueville. And he wrote a book in 1835 called Democracy in America and listened to what he said. He came and he studied us. So he can report back to France, here's why America is successful. Here's what he said. I sought for the greatness and genius in America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, but it was not there. I sought it in her fertile fields and boundless forests, but it was not there. I sought it in her rich mines and her vast world com uh, commerce, in her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, but it was not there. He said this, not until I went into the churches of America and they heard their pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her power and genius. And then he said, America is great because America is good. And if America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. This is 1835. Friends, is America still good? Oh, I know there's good people here. Many of them are sitting right here in this church. Good people, God-fearing people, people who, who honor what God has to say, who, who want to live according to this book. But as a nation, as a corpus, can we honestly look around and say America is a beacon of spiritual light right now? I don't believe we can. I mean, it started a long time ago when we were ripping prayer out of schools and we're ripping off the Ten Commandments from courthouse walls. I'm surprised we still have in God we trust on our currency. But we're trying to remove every last trace of God from our society, and even Brad isn't allowed to go into our public schools right here in this very city. Why not? It's because we're trying to remove God from society. As a nation, I don't even need to keep talking about abortion again. Even in 2015, our president bathed the White House in the rainbow light of homosexuality. As a nation, from the very top on down, we affirm something that God calls an abomination. Friends, can we really honestly expect to continue as a nation to be great if we will not be good? 
So this morning, if you want, we're only going to look at one verse because we've already been doing a lot of preaching. We haven't even gotten to our text yet. Does that encourage anybody? Second uh, Chronicles 7.14. We're one verse here, and that's it. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, to give you some context, we're dedicating the temple of Solomon, the greatest temple that ever was in Jerusalem. Remember, the temple was a picture of God's manifest presence on earth. People would come there to see what God was like. People would come there to serve God. And so at the dedication of this temple, they had a seven-day feast, if you will, where they, would, where they would consecrate the temple and themselves to God. And during that celebration, God appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God spoke to Solomon and let him know, here's what God wants from your country. It's a very famous verse. You've heard it many times. He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Now, a couple of qualifications here. Are we Israel? No. Are we a theocracy? No. We don't, so we can't necessarily claim that as soon as we repent that God's immediately going to bless us. So, but there are principles here we can still learn from, aren't there? What does God want from his people? What does God want from our nation? What kind of nation does God bless? We can see that. It begins with my people. God says, if my people who are called by my name, who is that today? That's you and me, okay? People who are called by God's name, we are his image bearers on earth. We're called Christians. That used to be an insult, by the way, when we were first called that. Oh, you guys are just a bunch of little Jesuses. You're little Christ, you're little Christians. We bear his name. And so if there's going to be a nationwide turn back to God, where's it gonna begin? It gonna begin out there, changing all them? Now, like first, like first Peter 4, 17, it says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. For God's people to look at themselves and say, forget the world, I have no business judging what's happening out there. I have to judge myself. I have to look at myself and, and say, God, are we living a moral life? Am I living in a way that's pleasing to you? And so nationwide revival begins with a single individual looking at themselves honestly and saying, Am I living righteously? Am I living according to God's word? Do I honor God with how I live? If my people who are called by my name, and then he asks us to do a number of things. He says, we are to humble ourselves. How do you know if you're humble? Well, I'll tell you right now, if you're not even listening to the message of what we're saying here and you have no intention of examining your heart to repent, you're not humble. Is there ever a time that any of us as Christians ever come to church and someone calls on us to reflect on our hearts, to repent, and there's, we go, you don't get much better than this, I'm good, you know? There's always something we drag into church with us that needs to be repented of, isn't there? And if you don't believe it, I'm gonna ask your wife. We're gonna ask her to give testimony here, okay? We all bring things into church that need repentance. And so if we're a humble people, it means that we're gonna look at ourselves honestly before God, and we're not gonna go, well, I'm certainly better than that guy. By the way, I'm not pointing to anybody back there. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm better than that guy. You no, know, we just look at ourselves, and then we look at the word of God and you say, you know what, God, no matter what anybody else does, I see it. And I wanna be changed to look like Jesus. I'm gonna humble myself. That word to humble yourself, to be humbled, it's used several times in Old Testament scripture. It's used when a, when a people are conquered. It's used of Moab, it's used of Midian, it's used of King Jabin in the book of Judges. 
It says that they were humbled. God humbled them, and he brought them to a state of humility. It means that they were defeated, and now they're at the mercy of this nation that conquered them. And so in a real way, when we are humble, all it is is we're acknowledging that Jesus is Lord of my life. Have you done that? By the way, that's how, that's, that's, that's how we get saved, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. It means to agree with God, Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. What does the Bible promise? You'll be saved. And so everybody who's a true believer has acknowledged and understood the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's not just a God who hands out, like at the, at the uh, parade tomorrow, over in, over in Ironton, you know, they're gonna be handing out candy and stuff, or maybe not, COVID, whatever. God isn't just throwing candy off of a fire engine to kids in a parade. That's not eternal life. We enter into that life with God. Okay? We repent. We acknowledge his lordship. He is over us. We acknowledge God's right to tell us how to live. We have been, if you will, conquered by God. We acknowledge I've been conquered by God. I'm not greater than him. How do we demonstrate that humility? Uh, number two, we pray. We're going to skip a couple slides here. Uh, we're gonna, you pray. Prayer is the first sign that we know that God has humbled you, that you have submitted yourself under him. Humble people pray. Proud people do not. So you tell me if you're humble or not, okay? I know there's times in my life where I'll, you know, if I go through a, you know, a, a period of time where I'm prayerless, I'm, God breaks my heart because I'm not humble. I'm not, I'm not submitting myself to him. And you know what's interesting? When we pray, how do we often represent prayer, right? Folding of hands or the putting the hands together. Uh, that's nowhere in the Bible, but it's not wrong. You know where that came from? Christians kind of adopted that uh, from a, an old custom dating back to the ancient Roman Empire. If you were fighting a Roman soldier and you see you're being defeated in battle, you have been humbled, you've been conquered by them. If you didn't want to die at the hands of a Roman soldier, you could cast your weapon aside, you could get onto your knees, and you could put your hands together. Okay? And what that was signifying is, I accept defeat. I'm not gonna fight you anymore. You are free now to bind my hands together and lead me off and do with me as you wish. That's what that represented. Later on, feudal lords would use that and people, if they wanted to swear fealty to that lord, they would do the same thing and they would bow before that lord and they would put their hands together, not to be bound, but simply to show submission. I submit myself to you as my Lord. I will follow. I will do as you ask. I'm under, you know, I'm, I'm committed to you. And so in prayer, often Christians, we will instinctively simply bow or we will put our hands together, simply showing God, I'm not going to fight you anymore. I submit to you. You are my Lord. I have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to honor God with our body, which is his. He says, we are not our own. And so I'm going to honor God, and I'm going to submit to him as my Lord. It, it, what we're communicating is what Jesus taught us to communicate in Matthew 6, verse 10, when he taught on the Lord's, uh, the Lord's prayer. What are we to pray? When, we, when Jesus taught us to pray, what are one of the things that he says to go ahead and pray like this, in this manner? He says to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So when we pray, it's not just, you know, we, dear God, thank you for this chimichanga. Help it not to clog my arteries. Amen. That's not, what, that's not a prayer. When we pray, it's not just, oh, buddy, we need to pray. God, help me pay my bills. 
You know, I bought those new tires and the big screen TV and now I can't pay my electric bill. Help my wife not to kill me. You know, in some, you know, that's not prayer. What Jesus wants us to pray is when we pray, we put our hands together, if you will. We bow and we acknowledge humbly, God, you are my Lord. You have every right to tell me how to live. And I submit myself to you. So prayer is a sign that a heart is surrendered and humbled to God. When a nation prays, a nation has been humbled. When a nation does not pray, instead we are calling out to God saying, my will be done. Number three, Solomon was told that his people should seek God's face. To seek the face of God means we desire fellowship with him. A few weeks ago, we had talked about, when we talked about heaven, we talked about Psalm 75. Psalm 75 and verse 25, it talked about the longing of our heart. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. I may die. He says, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Your portion is your inheritance. When somebody passes away and they give you all the junk they've been storing in their garage for 40 years, you know, you divide it up. You have a certain portion of that, okay? My portion, what I want my inheritance from God to be is simply God. I don't need anything else. God is my portion. And so when we seek the face of God, it's because God is really all I want out of this short earthly life anyway. I just want him. To seek someone's face means that we long to be with him. Lost people don't want to be with God. They don't want to be reminded of God. They don't want to think about God. Romans 1 says that lost people do not like to retain God in their knowledge. I don't like to even think about God. I just want to live my life. Believers do the opposite. We seek his face. What does it look like to seek God's face? You ever come home working a long day at work? First thing I do when I come home, I don't go out to the garage and start sweeping up the sawdust. I don't, I don't just uh, hang out and start watching TV. When I come home, very first thing I do is I come home and I start calling out my wife's name. Amber, you know, and I'm looking for her. What am I doing? I'm seeking her face. I'm like, where is she? I see one of the girls. Hey, where's your mom? You know, that's the first thing I wanna know when I come home. Very first, why? Because she is the priority of my life and my home. And I want to be with her. I want to be in her presence. And so I want to be near her. And I want to give her a big hug. And I want to kiss her on the head. And I want to hear how her day has been. I want to tell her how my day has been. I want to talk about our future and vacation, if we're going to take one or not this summer. You know, that's another conversation. You know, I want to see her. I want to be with her because I love her and I long to be with her. So I want to hear from her. And I want her to hear from me. What does it mean to seek the face of God? It means the same thing. It means that if you really love God, you're seeking his face. You want to hear from God, and you want God to hear from you. That's what it means to seek his face. A lot of times in America, we seek God in some bizarre ways. We don't want to go to his word, so what do we do? We find God in a, in a Frito. We find God on a pancake. You seen those? You go online, you get people, they start like a cult of the tortilla of Jesus. And I'm not even kidding. You know, we got these people, and you know, they're, they're buying this stuff up on eBay because they so want to have some experience with God that they, they find him in all kinds of random places. Piece of toast comes out for the morning, like, wow. That's Jesus. You know, God is speaking to me. No, friends, that's your toaster. And it just, you know, it, it looks more like a Rorschach test, you know, like one of these inkblot deals. But we're looking for Jesus in all the wrong ways, in all the wrong places. If we want to hear from God and we want God to speak to us, where do we get that? You, you, you just hope that God speaks to you from heaven? Do you hope he speaks to you through your, you know, your wheat toast that morning? No. 
You want him to speak through his word. That's how God speaks to us today. Hebrews begins, in many ways, God has spoken in times past through apostles, prophets, and stuff, but in these last days, has spoken through his son. And Jesus last week told us, John 16, his son said, the rest of everything I want to tell you, it's going to be in this book. So if you want to hear from God today, you want God to speak to you, you want, God, you, you want to seek the face of God, you got to begin here. God speaks to you through this book, and don't try to find it anywhere else. It's through this book. And, well, how do we speak back to God? What's the other side of that divine conversation? What do we call that? Prayer. And so I know it's simple. It's that diet and exercise thing you don't like to hear from your doctors. It's the same thing in church. You don't want to keep hearing prayer and Bible study. But, friends, that's what it is. You can't be a healthy Christian. You can't seek the face of God apart from reading his word and praying, talking back to him, submitting ourselves back unto him. If we, I mean, this is the only way God has spoken, and if we don't read God's word, we're communicating that we're not that interested in what God has to say. It's like coming home from work. Men, I say men because I'm a man. Um, you get on your phones, you're just kind of messing around your phone, your wife comes in to talk to you. What do you do with that phone? If you want to live, you know? You put that phone down, you know? I've been caught, you know, I have a friend who got caught doing that one time where he was on his phone and his wife started talking to him and, uh, and he kept looking at the phone while she's talking. And I'm here to tell you, my friend was very disappointed with the outcome of that conversation. We don't do that because the greatest thing we can give a person when they're talking to us is to give them our attention. When they're speaking, we desire to know what they said and why they said and, and how they said it. So God has spoken, but when we don't open up this book, essentially we're flipping through our phone while God's talking. And we have not honored him by seeking the words that he's already given to us in this Bible. And so we seek him through his word and we pray back to him. We converse with him. And the last thing he tells Solomon is this. He says, turn from your wicked ways. Turn just means to come back. We were going this way. Uh-oh, wrong way. Turn go back this way. The idea is that we have gone, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's the idea. That we're doing our own thing. That God has, God is over here and sometimes, do we ever, even as Christians, sometimes we stray away from God? We can get there. But when we do, we feel it, don't we? And we want to be back with him. We're like that dove that uh, Noah releases you know, in Genesis 8, and he goes out into the flood waters of the world, these waters of judgment, and all there is out there is sickness and death, and the dove goes out there and goes, nah, there's nothing here for me. I can't make a home out here. I'm going to go back to the ark where it's dry and it's healthy and there's food and there's a guy out there who loves me and takes care of me. I'm going to go to him, and the dove returns back to the ark. Sometimes God sends his doves out in the world, and we can get a little confused. And we go out and we see the judgment waters of the world and we're thinking, I could be like this. And we just start doing what the world does. We watch what they watch. We read what they read. We talk like they talk. We value what they value. And we begin to become to look just like the world. And so when God tells us to turn from our wicked ways, he's telling us to see that where you're at, this is the floodwaters of sin. You don't belong there. You're not supposed to live like the rest of the world does. Instead, turn, recognize that the best life you can possibly have is on the ark with Noah, okay? It's there in the presence of God and living as he asks us to live. And so God calls us to turn. This doesn't just mean turn and see where we should be. It means we turn with the intent of going back. 
That exact same word, by the way, was used in Genesis 8 of the dove. He turned and he went back. He forsook the floodwaters. The dove goes out there and he's flying around going, there is nothing here for me. There's no home, there's no food. I hate all of this. I'm going back where I belong. That's the idea when God says we are to turn back to him. We are to confess our sin where we acknowledge, yep, God, you said this and it's right. And for a lot of us, we think it ends there. As long as I say it's wrong, agree with God, then God's good with me. But instead, God asks us to confess and forsake our sin. Isn't that what he says? Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. You try to cover up your sin, you're not gonna succeed in life. He says, but he who confesses, agrees with God, and forsakes his sins will obtain mercy. What does it look like to forsake things? We talked about that on Wednesday night with a much smaller crowd. <laughs> we talked about that on Wednesday night a few weeks back. We talked about what does it mean to forsake our sin? Confessing is just going, yeah, that's bad. Forsaking means like, that's bad enough, I'm never going back to that. It's what we do, it's, it's what we put in the trash. Your wife makes you a lovely spaghetti dinner, you eat what you can, but you get full because you ate on the way home and you didn't have the heart to tell her. And so you take half of that spaghetti plate and you scrape it into the trash. You have no intention of going back to that spaghetti dinner, ever. It's now garbage, it's forsaken, you don't want it anymore. You have no intention to return to it. You'd be, in fact, you'd be pretty disappointed if, you know, three or four days later, you go, hey honey, what's for dinner? She goes, remember that spaghetti you threw away? I threw it in the microwave and I heated it up, there you go. You say, wow, that's no good, I forsook that. It's now rancid, it's nasty, it's gross. Why would I go back to this thing that I forsook? Proverbs says, like a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool or a sinner returns to his folly or his sin. Your dog, I, I hate to disappoint you, those who call them fur babies, but your dogs aren't very bright. You know, they will eat something that makes them sick and they're not thinking about it. Oh, I probably shouldn't eat that chocolate bar. They're gonna eat these things and get sick and then sometimes dogs will throw up and, they'll, and as soon as they get done throwing up, your dog's walking around, hey, hey, that looks interesting. Where'd that come from? And he'll go back and he will eat what he just threw up. And the Bible uses that as an example to us. You're like, you silly dog, that made you sick once. Why would you go back to that thing that made you sick again? Because he's a dog. He doesn't have the image of God in his heart. And so he, goes, he doesn't have any sense. So he'll keep going back to the thing that made him sick. And the Bible says a fool that returns to his folly is the same way. You're not thinking, hey, this ruined my life before. Why am I going back to it? When God calls us to confess and forsake our sins, it's for our good. It's so that we don't destroy our lives by being corrupted. It's so that we're not constantly eating sin, making us sick. Eating sin, then we throw it up and makes us sick. And we eat it again, and we just start the dog cycle again. No, when, when God tells us to confess and forsake sin, it's for our good. And we see that when we do that, there's great spiritual blessing on the other side of repentance, isn't there? Uh, if you read Acts 21, you'll read about Paul was in Ephesus, and there were a lot of false gods in Ephesus. In fact, there were sorcerers and witches. Do we have any sorcerers and witches in Ashland? I don't know, but they had a lot of them in Ephesus. And some of them came to Jesus, and when they did, how do you know that they truly believed in Jesus? They confessed their sin of sorcery, and they forsook it. What did it look like for them at that point? It says they gathered all of their witchcraft books together. And by the way, books back then were a lot more expensive than today. And then it says they burned the books. I'm never going back. It's really hard to read a burned book. 
I am never going back to this book. I'm never going back to this lifestyle. I am putting things in between me and my sin so that I can't go back to it. He says, and when they did that, it says, so the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. That's the result of forsaking sin. Your life gets better. It just does. You will have more joy. You will have more peace. You will have more uh, happiness doing it God's way. And by the way, that wasn't, that wasn't an inexpensive thing that they did. It says the value of the books that they burned in Acts 21 was 50,000 pieces of silver, which means nothing to us in Ashland, Kentucky. A, one piece of silver was a full day's wages. If you work five days a week and never take a vacation, it would take you 192 years to pay for those books. That was a really valuable thing that they destroyed, but they did it so that they could prosper, so they can confess and forsake their sin. And so what happens when God's people decide to confess and forsake sin? Even though it may be expensive, even though it may cost you, even though it may dramatically inconvenience your life, when we take sin and we forsake it and we make sure we can't go back to it, what, is, what happens? God exalts our nation. How do I know that? Proverbs 13.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness just means you're living rightly according to a moral standard. When we live rightly, the Bible says God exalts that nation. Can, does God have that kind of power? Can God cause entire nations to rise or fall based upon their obedience to the word of God? He can and he did. I mean, six times up and down. It's like a rerun, you know, in the Bible, in the book of Judges. They went up and down, up and down, up and down. And God would bring in an enemy invader and, and wipe them out. And then he'd, they'd repent and they'd come back to God. And then they'd fall into sin. He'd, he'd, he'd hit them again. He'd raise up a judge and deliver them again, over and over. God has that kind of power. Remember, Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, God makes it go wherever he wants. God has that kind of power. Our founding fathers recognized that. Even Benjamin Franklin addressed the Constitutional Convention in 1787, and he said this, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, except the Lord build, they labor in vain who build it. And then old Ben Franklin said this, I firmly believe this and also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. And then he gives us a prophecy. He says, if we, if we uh, Ben Franklin's saying this, if we walk away from God and we think that we can be, a, we're great because we're America, doggone it, we're America, so we're great because of who we are, we're like David counting his armies, saying, behold, look at my might and power. If America thinks they're great because America is great rather than because of God, they've got another thing coming. Ben Franklin said this, if we walk away from God, we shall be divided by our partial local interests. That on the issue of God and morality, a nation will become divided by partial local interests and our projects will be confounded and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to a future age. 
my friends and loved ones, if I could put sackcloth on our cattle right now, I would do it. If I thought that would bring a nationwide repentance, but I know that repentance, when it begins, it begins with the house of God, with us being humbled and allowing God to speak through our hearts and our lives and saying, whatever the rest of the world does, whatever the rest of the church does, whatever the rest of this, my family does, doesn't matter. I want to be right with God. And I'm going to search out and just open up my heart and say, God, anything that isn't conforming to your word, God, take it out. I give it freely to you. As a nation, friends, if we want to survive, if we don't want to become no better than the builders of Babel, we've got to do better. We've got, and the only way to do better, friends, is, is not more legislation. No one political party is going to save us. The only thing that can save America is the gospel of Jesus Christ, entering the hearts of men and converting them one by one. As a denomination, friends, we have to do better. I know a lot of you guys, you're great people, but as a denomination, we can corporately say as a whole, we got to do better. As a, as a Southern Baptist Convention, I'd like to call all of our churches to return back to the historic truths of the Bible, to return back to simply preaching the Word of God, that the, maybe the pulpits might be flaming with God's righteousness, as Alexis de Tocqueville saw many years ago when he said America was great. I'd like to call all Southern Baptists to focus not on statistics, but on spirituality. What, what does it matter if we're duplicating ourselves and increasing and we're the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. if we're not spiritual beings? If we don't look and act like Jesus, what does it matter? What is it all for? It's not all for our hubris to go, oh, look how great and big we are. That's David counting his armies. We don't want to be that. Focus on spirituality, not statistics. People more than policies, discipleship rather than simply dominion. Let's see how big we can get as a denomination. Can I tell you right now, God doesn't care how big you are as a church or how big you are as a denomination. What pleases God? That same book, Chronicles, says the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for that one soul whose heart is fully his that he might show himself mighty on their behalf. God doesn't care about a lot of things because you know what? God's infinite. What does that mean? If you're infinite, are you impressed with large numbers of anything? There's no such thing as big or small to God. There's only obedient and disobedient, those who honor God and those who don't. And so I don't care how big the Southern Baptist Convention ever gets. What I'd like to see us do is return to the Word of God and preaching the Word of God and we're worried more about being righteous than relevant. We've got to get back to what the Word of God says and be like Him. And as a nation, if we can get our churches to begin turning back to God in revival with a revived spirit, one soul at a time, friends, there may be hope if God's people will return and bless God. Maybe, just maybe, God might bless America and bless His people. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father, we pray this morning. This is a tough message. And God, in my heart, I would love just to preach silly, lighthearted little things to make people happy and pat me on the back and tell me how, how much they enjoyed a story about cats. But God, we've got a responsibility to preach your word and to preach your righteousness, to not just be a religious organization, but to be a living, breathing body of Christ who follows its head. And we know that our head is commanding us tonight, this morning, to repent, to confess the things that are wrong, to, defend, to confess the things that are weak in our corpus, in our body, as a nation, as a denomination, 
to confess what you say is wrong is wrong and to prepare our hearts, God, to repent and to follow you again. God, I pray for nothing short of a nationwide revival. Lord, may the pains of this last week shock us into the reality that life isn't just about me. It's not just about increasing my kingdom, but that this life is is all about a singular person of Jesus Christ and knowing him and following him and praying with him, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray that for, for our part as a church, it would begin right here. As a church, God, that revival would begin in each of our hearts. And as more and more of us catch the winds of revival, God, that our hearts together as a unified corpus, as a body, that we might see church-wide revival, an interest, renewed interest in prayer and humbling ourselves before you, a renewed interest in your word, a renewed interest in holiness, in living life the way you asked us to and commanded us to. And God, if we dare dream so big that that would begin a revival that would spread throughout our community, our state, our country, God, and even the world, use us greatly, Lord, here and afar. Bring glory to your name and how we live, what we teach, and how we love one another. May it represent the kind of love that Jesus has for each one who's here. We pray all this in Christ's name. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.